Truth Espresso, Episode 41. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> and now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. <sighs> this is Truth Espresso. With Daniel Minnick. Hello, Daniel Minnick here, your host of the Truth Espresso podcast. Welcome. I hope you're having a good day or afternoon or night, wherever you may be. And in this episode, we are going to get into banking. Oh, boring. You might as well just turn it off right now. Okay, bye. Oh, what am I saying? Come on, I hope that an episode about banking, I can try to make this a little bit more interesting. Maybe I've piqued your interest because why would I do an episode about banking if I didn't have a reason for it? (laughs) I mean, come on, don't we all use banks? Don't we have the slightest interest in what these people working in these buildings like First National Bank or Chase Bank or branches of some large conglomerate institution do with our money that we safely entrust to them? I mean, do we just toss our money over the fence and say, I trust you with my money. Have fun with it. No, maybe we should think about banking because the world itself, the economies of the world, of the countries of the world, run on banks. Wars are financed with banks. Companies borrow lots of money from banks to invest in creating products and services. And when we create those deposit accounts or savings accounts and we put some money in there. What do these banks do? I mean, don't we have some kind of curiosity to know what happens to our precious money behind the scenes? Well, I hope that this is what this episode will be for, and I hope not only to pique your interest and explain how banking works today, I hope that I can help you to be curious about Maybe how banking should work and it's not working. So the title of this episode is Whose Vault Is It Anyway? (laughs) How Banking Went Wrong. Yes, I believe that the way banks are run today, the way banking is done today, the way we have a central bank that creates money out of thin air is wrong. And Although this episode is not going to get into the history of uh, institutions like the Federal Reserve, that will be for a future episode. But I want to get down to the basics. So let's start with the first question of whose vault is it anyway? How banking went wrong? What is a bank? So just what is this weird thing anyway? I mean, is a bank a building? Is a bank... A bunch of people. Well, let's think about what the technical, historical definition of the word bank would be. 
A bank is supposed to be a place of storage. So let's think about places of storage with which we are familiar. So where would you store your clothes, your wardrobe? How about a closet? So a closet is basically a small little bank for you to store your clothes. And how about where do you store your car? Well, you know, not everyone has one of these. Some people have to park their car on the street. But if you happen to be fortunate enough to live in a, a house that has an attached or detached garage, the garage would essentially be a small bank where you'd store your one or two or three cars. <laughs> And now let's move on to the obvious question about money. Well, let's say you have a little bit of cash and where do you usually keep the cash that you would have on hand? Well, something that you carry around. Mostly if you're female, you might carry around a purse or, you know, if you're male, you might carry around a wallet. And I know there are men purses and female wallets, but let's not belabor that point. A wallet or a purse is like a tiny little bank for storing a little bit of cash that you would have on hand to be ready for spending. It also hold your credit cards or bank cards or things like that. So, a wallet or a purse is a storage place for storing a little bit of money. Now, what happens if you have a lot of money and you want to keep that money in safekeeping? You know, you don't want to stuff millions of dollars under a mattress in the hope that, um, you know, your house doesn't catch on fire and all those savings go up in flames. Or maybe you have a little safe, but, you know, someone might be able to break into your house and steal that safe. And there goes all those savings. So sometimes you might want to save a lot of your money outside your house in a place that's built for securely storing money. So for larger amounts of money that you don't anticipate having to use a lot of it at one time or in the near future, you might look to a bank, what we call a bank, for storing larger amounts of money. And a bank would usually have this huge vault made of solid steel or iron with a large door with a big wheel thingy on it for opening the door and you know all that money is stored there securely and so no one's going to be able to just waltz in and take it and so because of that security you look to store a larger amount of money in a bank That's what a bank is. It's a place, a secure place with a large vault for securely storing large amounts of money. So how did banks begin? Well, banking has been around for most of recorded human history. Banks actually go back to ancient times. Um, the first recognized banks from history come from ancient Mesopotamia. But these banks didn't have green pieces of paper or things like that for money. They actually lent seeds to farmers. So what would the farmers do with these loaned out seeds? Farmers got access to 
precious seeds that they could use to plant into the ground and do the work of watering and gardening. And then as soon as the crops grow and they get a harvest, then these farmers who took out a loan from the bank of seeds would then pay back the bank in some of the harvest crops. And so that was kind of a win-win on both sides. Farmers got seeds that they didn't have ready access to. The banks would make an investment in the farmer by lending out the seeds with the hopes of getting a return from these lent out seeds by getting some of the crops. And so these type of banks, although this was not money, we can consider these agricultural venture capitalists. (laughs) And, you know, if you really think about it, this is probably where the idea of seed money came. (laughs) So ancient Mesopotamia, the first literal seed loans arose. And then we move on to the earliest recorded financial banking systems that began around 1800 BC in Babylon during the time of Hammurabi. If you're familiar with the ancient writing of the Hammurabi Code of Laws that actually have a lot of similarity with the intuitiveness of common law and even um, some of the laws of the Bible... There's the concept of human rights in Hammurabi's Code of Laws in ancient Babylon. So, around 1800 BC, the first financial banks arose. So, where would you have safe, secure storage of money, which at this time would be gold or silver, particularly gold? Well, when you have an ancient religious civilization that built large buildings for religious purposes, they built temples for their priestly class to function, and these temples would be elaborate works of actually secure storage ability. And so, Temples were the most logical place for this kind of financial activity to arise. And so, temples, these large, solid religious structures, were the safest places to store gold. And so, priests would make loans to merchants or even to the government. And the temples would charge depositors storage fees and they would make loans. So, These temples in ancient Babylon would function as financial institutions in the form of full reserve banking. And I'm going to discuss full reserve banking a little later in this episode. So we just looked at how did banks begin? We asked the question, what is a bank? And then the second question, how did banks begin? So the third question we want to answer is, what do banks do? What do these mysterious institutions and buildings with people working in them having money going in and money going out and making loans and collecting fees and so on, what do banks do? 
Well, first, before we answer the question, what do banks do? We have to understand that there is more than one form of a bank. There's different types of banks, and so two particular common types of banks that actually function today. We want to look at first number one commercial banks. Now, these are the kinds of banks with which we, as typical customers, would be most familiar. Commercial banks are ones that have deposit accounts. So you deposit some money in a bank. You get your statements, or now you have your app on your phone that you could see the balance of your deposit at any time you want by simply logging in and looking at it on your phone. So you put some money in; it could be a little or a lot, and then you see that balance, that number sitting in the bank, and your account tells you how much you have, and so. Holding deposits is one of the functions of a commercial bank. And now another function of our, of our friendly commercial bank is to make loans. And so, commercial banks will make loans to businesses who will then pay back the money over time at what is called interest. And I would really love to get into the topic of interest in depth in a soon episode. So commercial banks hold deposits and make loans. Another type of bank to see what banks do is the investment bank. So investment banks function as middlemen, and these banks have a、um, source of capital, and they intervene or they intermediate to help. Public companies issue stock. So, so, if a company wants to go public, as it's called, and become a company that you know would go on the New York Stock Exchange, it'd be listed under the S and P or the Dow Jones Industrial, and they would issue out shares of their company that people can buy and sell. Investment banks will come to the negotiating table and help these companies out with determining valuations and stock prices and、uh, how many shares they can dole out, and these companies would pay them for that service. Investment banks also advise both sides of negotiating corporate acquisitions and mergers and. Sales say a company wants to buy out another company, so investment banks help that kind of transaction take place. And so you could see that there are actually pretty big differences between commercial banks and investment banks. Most of the banking we as Common poor peasants do are with commercial banks and people with lots of money and lots of stake in business activity will have a lot of activity related to investment banks. So that's what commercial banks and investment banks do. We answered what is a bank. We answered how did banks begin looking at ancient Mesopotamia and Babylon. We asked, "What do banks do?" And we saw that there are commercial banks and investment banks. And so now, the next question that we want to answer is an obvious question: What do banks do with my money? 
And so to answer that question, we have to look at actually two different systems in which commercial banks operate, or rather historically have operated, compared to how they now operate. So more historically, we would see something, number one, that is called a full reserve bank. So a full reserve bank would store your deposit securely in the vault. Wait, don't banks do that today? Well, Yes and no. Uh, we'll get into that uh, pretty soon. But a full reserve bank, you would take whatever money you want to deposit for safekeeping, you'd give it to them, and they would take your money and put it safely in a vault so that you know that whenever you want to get it back, it's right there in that vault. And a full reserve bank would likely charge you a small storage fee based on how long you want to keep your money in the vault. So one way that a full reserve bank historically would make money off of deposits would be to charge a small storage fee. So think about comparing this to the you know way... A lot of people now, with all the stuff that they have that won't fit in their house or how their garages now don't fit their cars and they have all this junk in their garage and now they have even more junk that, <laughs> that they need to pay a storage facility a monthly fee to store their, some of their other stuff. Some people avail themselves of these storage services that are fairly close to their house. They can just drive a little distance and get their stuff out of the storage bin at any time. But to keep their stuff in that shed, to be able to rent the space in that shed, they have to pay a little bit of money each month for using that space. And so that's the way a full reserve bank deals with deposits of money. You would pay a little fee every month for your money to be stored securely in their vault. Now, you may not like that idea, but that's how banking actually worked for quite a while in history. And of course, we call these deposits demand deposits because at any time, you could come to the bank and say, I want to take my money out. And so, you take your money out. You could take some of your money out, or you could take all of it out. Now, if you take all of it out, they give you the money you put in there or that you have left in there and your monthly or so storage fee would end at that time. And most likely the storage fee would be determined based on how much money you have at the vault. So if you take some of it out, your storage fee might decrease and you get the idea of how this would work because it's similar to how we would use a storage service or a storage shed to store things other than money. So that's full reserve banking and that is historic deposit banking. But now we're going to get into fractional reserve banking. And fractional reserve banking is a more recent concept, but it's actually taken the world by storm. And now pretty much every, I mean, every country, every government sanctions fractional reserve banking 
you know, you walk down to your local bank, it could be a small bank, or it could be a branch of a larger bank, like Chase Bank, but you're not going to be able to find really any full reserve banks down the street. Every one of these banks with which you do business is going to be a fractional reserve bank. So just what is a fractional reserve bank? Well, what does it do? A fractional reserve bank only keeps a fraction of the total deposits in a vault. So let's say that a bank has a million dollars worth of deposit accounts. All the depositors, whatever amount that they've all put in, the total of that totals up to a million dollars. At least that's the total of what all the balances on their accounts would say that they have in the vault in the bank. But the bank actually only holds a fraction of that. Now, you know, alarm bells might be going off in your mind. You might be raising red flags about that and saying, what? That's how banking works? You mean banks don't really keep my money? Well, what in the world is this amount on my balance sheet or in my app telling me if the bank doesn't really have it? Well, in all likelihood, if you have a small amount of money, you and the markets are doing well, and, you know, it's a nice sunny day, you likely could walk down to the bank, and if you wanted to take your money out, you would be able to do that and get your full amount in cash or checks or however you want it denominated. So, don't think that the bank only keeps a fraction of your, of your particular balance. But it is true that a bank... A fractional reserve bank only keeps a fraction of the total deposits that it has in its accounts. So your full deposit amount may not actually stay in the bank in a technical sense. Some of that money or could even could be all of it technically, some of it could be lent out as loans or invested somewhere and the bank hopes to be able to cash in on the earnings from that, uh, to be able to earn interest on loaning some of it out or making investments and taking risks. Now, I can just see the red flags going on even more. Ding, ding, ding. The alarm bells are going off. What in the world are these banks doing with my money? You could withdraw at any time your deposit amount if it's available. But like I said, in all likelihood, on a normal day, you should be able to walk into the bank and they'll give you your money. But then you might be thinking, well, shouldn't I be concerned? I mean, if fractional reserve banking has been the preferred mainstream and government-protected system of banking for a long time, then aren't all banks inherently insolvent? I mean, if the banks can't pay out all their liabilities at any given time, aren't they all inherently insolvent? Well, I would say, in my understanding of economics, yes, they are all inherently insolvent. Now, that doesn't mean, as I said, that you won't be able to get all your money out. 
But if all the depositors try to get all their money out at one time, you'll see a bank kind of crash and burn. And you've probably seen that kind of phenomenon in movies, and I'll get to that a little bit. So that was, what do banks do with my money? Full reserve banks, all your money's on deposit in the vault. Fractional reserve banks, they keep a fraction of total deposits, they lend out some of your money, and they invest some of your money, and... That's how they make money, at least one way they make money. So now we move to the question, how did fractional reserve banking happen? I mean, just to look at fractional reserve banking and understand how they work, it just doesn't seem intuitively right. How did this happen? Well, as I said before, historically speaking, Banking was full reserve initially. So all banks, all fractional reserve banks, have their historical roots in full reserve banking. And let's go to an example, uh, the Bank of Amsterdam. So historically, the Bank of Amsterdam, depositors would put some gold or silver into the vault. And then, so how did centuries ago people know how much money they had stored at the vault of the blacksmith or the Bank of Amsterdam? They put some gold or silver there. What do they have to do? I mean, they just walk away and then a year later, if they show up and say, hey, can I take out my 10 talents of gold? And then the bank says, ha ha ha, who are you? No, they, they'd have to have some kind of receipt from the bank warehouse that would entitle them to withdraw that money again. And so the Bank of Amsterdam, for example, would issue paper notes or warehouse receipts that represented the deposit money. And so initially, banks might just have a way of writing how much money Uh, you have in the bank on a warehouse receipt in total, and then you'd carry that around, you'd keep it, you want to keep that piece of paper, whatever it is, pretty safe, wouldn't you? But then if you want to take your money back, you'd bring that receipt back to the bank, and then the bank would return your money and take back that warehouse receipt. And so that's how that would work. But think of the dynamics of that. You know, how much does gold and silver weigh? And if if you're needing to carry money around with you, what would be easier to carry around gold and silver, especially as you hear them jingle in your pocket as other people might hear these gold and silver coins jingling in your clothes pockets or in your purses or they, they, you know, you might have an increased chance of getting mugged or robbed and having and losing that money. And so the point of a bank is to store some of your money securely more secure than your house and more secure than your purse or wallet. And so these warehouse receipts, these paper notes would be easier to carry around and they represented the money that you held in the bank. 
And so people could actually use these notes as an easier medium of exchange to represent the gold or silver that they had stored at the bank. So they could actually use these notes, these receipts as money substitutes. And there's really nothing wrong with this. You know, I did say that money was best as gold and silver in a previous episode, but there's nothing wrong with having some representation of the money, such as with paper notes or receipts or something that represented the actual money. And so these paper notes, we call those money substitutes or currency And so people could actually treat these as money. They could transact these. You could give this to someone as a gift, or you could buy something on the market with a paper receipt, and then that would entitle that person to bring that receipt to the bank and exchange it for the gold and silver stored at the bank. But let's get back to how banks, these full reserve banks that would store 100% of depositors' money securely in the vault. And so if all the depositors somehow demanded all their deposits, the bank would easily be able to exchange those receipts, those paper notes for the gold and silver that the depositors had, and there would be no problem. But how did these banks eventually, over time, evolve into something called fractional reserve banking, where they didn't have to keep all of the depositors' money in the vaults? So think about when a bank makes a loan. So loans can earn money through interest. And as I mentioned before, I really am excited about getting into an episode to get deep onto the concept of interest. And we're not just going to talk about math problems or those kinds of boring word problems in your consumer math class at school, you know, no, interest is a lot more uh, interesting than that. And we'll get into why there is even such a thing as interest after all and what affects the rate of interest and why interest should be determined by the free market and not by some central bank pushing buttons and pulling levers as it were. But, you know, a bank could take a large amount of money that it has in its vault and, you know, loan it out in the hope of gaining some money earned through interest on repaying the loan. And so the earnings from loaning out money could be greater if the bank loaned out some deposits. I mean, just think about it. What are the chances that all or most of the depositors would withdraw their deposits at the same time? So as long as people just maintained a steady, occasional withdrawal process, there would be a large pool of depositors' money at the disposal of these banks behind the scenes. And what the depositors don't know is not going to hurt them if they just understand that the money is still in the bank. And as a result, the bank would issue more notes into circulation than would represent money that they held in reserves in their vault. 
So think of how you would react. Let's make up a story. Let's think of banking, as I said, when I talked about storage sheds or storage bins where you'd store things other than money. Think of how you would react if you used a storage service for storing, say, some of your tools. You find out when you go to reclaim your tools that they're not in the vault. And you ask the storage owner there, what's the big idea? I trusted you to keep my tools securely in the vault. But they give you this answer. Well, your tools were secure in our vault, but we figured you wouldn't come to withdraw them for a while. We took the liberty to rent them out to someone for six months. If they're just going to sit in our vault and do nothing, why shouldn't we rent them out, put them to good use, and make some money off of them? (laughs) You might be pretty upset about that kind of answer. You might think, Well, if that's how I intended my tools to be used, I could have rented them out myself. But I didn't want that. I wanted them securely stored in the vault so that they would be there when I want them and the way I left them. I shouldn't be risking anything by entrusting you to store them. I'm already paying for that service. So, what would you do in that situation if a storage service storing your tools started lending them out or renting them out behind your back, trying to make a buck off of your assets? Uh, You would probably tell people to avoid that fraudulent storage service that sneakily does things behind your back. You would want future customers not to do business with them. And when current customers find out what's going on, they will try to withdraw their tools en masse. And not all of them would get their tools back. So, in the world of banking, this is what is called a run on the bank. And you've probably seen the movie Mary Poppins. Do you remember that scene in Mary Poppins uh, where Mr. Banks brought his children, Jane and Michael, into the bank and they're trying to, he's trying to encourage Michael to open an account at the bank with his tuppence or two pence or two pennies. And the owner of the bank assumed that Michael was actually agreeing and swiped the two pennies and said, Welcome to our joyful family of investors. And then Michael shouted, Give it back! Give me back the money! And because the bank did not return the tuppence, it started a chain reaction of depositors demanding their account balances. But this run on the bank was a problem because the bank could not redeem all the withdrawals. This got George Banks inadvertently in trouble because his son's reaction actually revealed that the bank could not meet all depositors' withdrawal demands. But if the bank is supposed to be a trustworthy storage service for deposits, why should this be a huge problem if the bank were full reserves? Sure, it would be a setback temporarily because then there would be fewer uh, storage fees being made for a time, but once a bank 
proves to be sound to meet all demand deposits, it will come back stronger as public confidence is solidified. So, we just understood, we answered the question of how fractional reserve banking started because full reserve banks wanted to cash in on depositors' money and loan it out and make money off of it, relying on the idea that not all depositors would withdraw their money at the same time. And so, they treated the depositors' money as their own money to loan out. And so if I've just put a bad taste in your mouth for fractional reserve banking, I intended that because I don't like the system. I believe that the system is by definition inherently insolvent and corrupted by the government instituting this kind of system and protecting it. But you might ask the question, well, why don't I see runs in the bank today? It seems like banks don't have runs today. And, you know, there's going to be, I'm going to get into some of the history as I go through more modern history, particularly the history of banking in the United States and, you know, the eventual creation of the Federal Reserve System that we have today. So I hope that you will be interested to know how we got a Federal Reserve System in 1913. But as we have to deal with the reality of fractional reserve banking, let's ask the question, what really is wrong with fractional reserve banking? I mean, I think we answered that kind of, but, you know, if it's been working today, I mean, people still put their money in the bank. I mean, you'll have people put money in the bank and they will defend the idea that fractional reserve banking is absolutely necessary for a growing and thriving economy. It's like a modern invention of genius that grows economies past the quaint old ways of history and slow growth and little innovation and, you know, the Stone Age and things like that. But let's actually look at what would seem to be some apparent pros of fractional reserve banking. So, as I described full reserve banking, where you put your money in the vault and the full reserve bank would charge you a small monthly fee to keep your money there. You might not like that, but with fractional reserve banking and the way they make money by loaning out your money and other people's money, they don't have to charge fees for deposits. Commercial banks let you open an account, and most of them now, it's free. You just put your money in the bank, and, you know, why would you stuff a bunch of money under your mattress when you can put it in the bank and not have to pay anything, and there's that convenience of having a place there that you can withdraw it if you can. So, fractional reserve banks no longer charge fees for deposits, and they make their money other ways. Also, commercial banks operating under the fractional reserve system can offer savings accounts that earn interest. 
So you mean you can stick some money in a different kind of account at the bank and you actually earn money by putting it in their vault? I mean, isn't that a wonderful function of the banking system that we have today? Isn't that a plus for fractional reserve banking? Well, let's look at some of the cons. So one of the cons of fractional reserve banking especially as we see things now uh, in 2020 in the United States of America, the interest earned even on savings accounts is quite low. I mean, a lot of banks now, you can't even earn 1% on your savings account. You earn a fraction of a percent. And this rate of money that you earn, this interest that you earn on your savings accounts can definitely be lower than the rate of inflation caused by fractional reserve banking. And so if the rate of inflation is about 2% per year, and that's a very conservative estimate, it seems like you're losing out on the deal even with a savings account. And another con, as that explains, is that fractional reserve banking is by definition an engine for inflation, and inflation being the increase in the supply of money. And as the money supply increases, the value of any unit of that money decreases in how much goods and services it can buy. So those are pros and cons to the modern system of fractional reserve banking. And now, the last question I'd like to answer and ask is, what are some possible solutions to fractional reserve banking? I mean, Daniel, if fractional reserve banking is the beast that you've described, if it's the problem that you've described and it introduces moral hazard... What are some possible solutions? I mean, are we supposed to go back to full reserve banking? Is that even feasible in a modern economy? I mean, is it how can banks even make money? So how could a bank running under a full reserve system make money if it can't lend out deposits? I mean, because if it lended out deposits, by definition, it would end up being fractional reserve. It has to be able to store and hold all of the depositors' money at all time and at any given moment if all depositors were to withdraw all their money, they would be able to get it back. So how could a bank make money? I mean, is it supposed to charge fees for storage again? I mean, think that is so infeasible with the way people think about banking and money today. Well, let's think of our tool storage story. Tools have value. We could sell tools for money and we entrust storage sheds to store our tools and we're willing to pay for the service because we want our tools to be stored securely in a place that is easily accessible and withdrawal on demand 
And it doesn't cost a whole lot to do that. So yes, it would take a little deprogramming to get people to understand that they're actually losing out in an inflation-driven fractional reserve system than they would be for the modest storage fee that they would have to pay a bank to store their deposits. But couldn't a money storage service like a full reserve bank earn money other ways than lending out depositors' money as loans? Because think about the way a bank is. I mean, think about comparing a fractional reserve bank to a business. Um, You know, think about the accounting of a business and on the ledger you have assets on one side and liabilities on the other side. And guess what? Any loan that a bank gets would actually be on the liabilities side as accounts payable. So although the business might have the money that uh, from the loan that they can invest or spend, they owe that money by definition, that becomes a liability. It is an accounts payable. But with a fractional reserve bank, the way things work is that any money in the bank, even if it is a demand deposit that you would think would technically be considered a liability, is also and equally treated as an asset because the more people deposit money in the bank, the more the bank can actually lend out by protection by law of the government. So banks can treat liabilities as assets in the way no other business could work. But you might think, how could banks operate any other way? I mean, money is money to a bank. And if a bank couldn't lend out depositors money, how could they make money other ways than by just charging storage fees? Well, if we move to a full reserve banking system, that would likely reintroduce storage fees for deposits. But, you know, as I said before, compare that to today with savings accounts earning interest at a fraction of a percent, while the reported rate of inflation is 2%. And in a sense, you're already effectively paying more than what you would have to pay with storage fees just by holding on to your dollars and letting your purchasing power slip away each year through inflation. But full reserve banks could earn revenues, yes, by depositors' fees, but also by providing depositor services and investment banking commissions. Just like buying shares of stock, a customer could have a deposit account that they pay storage fees for, or a customer could provide some money as capital for investment banking activities and earn dividends. And could a full reserve bank still loan out money? Well, if the bank had its own capital, its own money separate from deposit accounts, the bank could loan that out. So yes, a bank could provide both deposits and loan functionalities by keeping these accounts separate. All deposit accounts would be untouchable by the money that the bank would have to use for loans. 
So where could a bank get this money to use from loans that doesn't touch, that keeps its grubby mitts off of the money that depositors have on hands? Keep them separate. Well, the equivalent service of a savings account in a full reserve bank could be a loanable funds account where the customer earns interest by having their money participating in loans to businesses. And this is, you know, what fractional reserve banks do today. But instead of lending out deposit money, you know, a deposit account and a loanable funds account would be two different accounts with two different sources of money. And it would be an investment where the customer gives money to the bank to loan out. And as the bank loans out large amounts to businesses as capital for them, you know, large business activities like that, the customer would earn interest as participating in these loans to businesses. So just kind of like buying stocks in a company, the customer's small loanable fund account would earn part of the interest that, that was used to loan out to businesses. So naturally, a full reserve bank do, uh, operating this way could have different types of loanable funds accounts. The full reserve bank could have higher risk and lower risk accounts. Naturally, there could be shared risk if the borrowers default, but the bank could provide higher earnings for customer lenders who would be willing to take a higher risk share in the loan. Or the bank could also offer a lower rate of earnings, lower rate of interest for a loan account that would be more insured from default. So higher risk, higher reward, lower risk, lower reward. So deposit accounts with modest fees in a fractional reserve bank and separate pooled loan earning accounts could be two ways for full reserve commercial banks to thrive in a full reserve system. And so let's conclude this brief look at banking, the history of banking, the problems with fractional reserve banking, and a solution as to how we could return to a full reserve banking system that doesn't mishandle depositors' money and provide an engine for inflation and rob your purchasing power by increasing the supply of money. In conclusion, not having our wealth robbed beyond our control through the inflationary practices of a fractional reserve banking system, I believe would be well worth the apparent costs of a full reserve system, or at least some free banking system that didn't institutionalize fractional reserve banking. And so I hope that this discussion has at least piqued your interest a little bit and helped you to understand a little bit about how banking works and maybe get your mind geared toward how banking should and could work and keep the value of money sound. 
have a sound money system in which depositors and lenders and banks can benefit and not have their wealth robbed by banks and governments that can just simply increase the supply of money, distribute it to their friends, spend it as they will, and make us poorer and poorer for using the money that they expect us to use. So stay tuned for future episodes about banking and money and economics. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 